historical nature of the Bible. That is, that the Bible is talking about real history. And it's not talking about religious ideas and speculations. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. The Bible marries so closely and tightly what it's teaching about God and our relationship with him to what happened in history that you can't separate the two. And this is the scandal that is felt intellectually by our generation and, and actually for the last 200 years. The scandal is that you can't have your biblical faith without your inerrant Bible. You can't come in as a cafeteria and pick and choose what you want out of the Bible because the Bible won't let you do that. The Bible roots ideas about God, salvation, and sin to what went on in history and what the Bible reports. So there's no severing of that. And this is unlike other religions. If you think about it, if you read, for example, the Analytics of Confucius, these are moral and ethical teachings, precepts, and so on, that don't depend on Chinese history. They just are moral insights, so to speak, of, of Confucius. So Confucianism doesn't rest its case on the validity of elements in Chinese history. You can go to uh, other religions outside of the Bible and you'll see the same trend. Hinduism, for example. It doesn't matter what happened in Indian history to justify or negate Hinduism. But our faith, our biblical faith, is at one with the events of Scripture. So that's the problem we have. And that's why I'm going over these events and why at the end of the course, those of you who are interested, we have some appendices. We'll also discuss when we get into the historicity of the, uh, the historical problems of, of biology and geology and astrophysics and so on in more detail. And, and you say, well, why do you always bother with that? Because I have to. If, if the modern man is going to say he can't believe the Bible because of that, then I have to deal with that. And the person who says, I can't believe because of that, is, is really partially right in the sense that they recognize that our faith is historically grounded. So that's the first thing, that, and this is why, we keep, why I've partitioned this course in terms of events to force us in our way we think, the basic way we think, to think in terms of historic events, creation, fall, flood, and that if these things did not happen, then uh, the truths that we learn are also not true. So we, we've talked in terms of those first two events, and now we're going to move on to the third one, the flood. Um, the second thing that I said we were going to deal with is we were going to deal with the interrelationship of one part of the Bible and its teachings to the other part of the Bible and its teachings. Because you can't defend the Bible in piecemeal fashion. It's not like you get somebody to believe this part of the Scriptures, and then later on they come to believe that part of the Scriptures. The problem with that is, is that as long as the human being is deciding which part of Scripture they're going to believe and which part they are not, who's the final authority? If that's the game that's being played, what is the supreme rule of the game? It's the autonomous judgment of man. Whereas, what is our faith? Our faith is that it's God's word. 
and therefore God himself is the authority through the text. So the text has to be the authority. And we may not like the text. We may have difficulties with the text. Of course we do. We have many vast areas of the text we don't understand. Of course we do. But if you are a Christian, you have in principle submitted to the fact that you aren't the final authority, God is. Or society isn't the final authority, God is. You've located your authority in a different place. And then we said the third thing we were going to stress uh, was the fact that there are adequate defense of the faith and so on, which we're doing. So tonight, as we start, I want to just draw your attention to these two, the interrelationship of these three events. Before we get too far into the flood, let's just talk about something we've talked about in the past. The event of creation defines for us what? It defines the creator-creature distinction. Let's review a minute. Right? You can't have a creation without a creator. So the act of creation defines the creator-creature distinction. It defines it like no other religion on earth is defined. Hinduism doesn't define it that way. Paganism never has defined it that way. Only the Bible defines a creator-creature distinction. Then we said inside the creation, there's a further distinction, the distinction between man and nature. Paganism does not distinguish that, and you can see it in everyday headlines, Time Magazine, and science books, that man is very much like the chimpanzee because if he's 98% the same in his genetic structure, then they must be related. And the fact of the matter is that there's an infinite gulf between the smartest chimpanzee and the stupidest man because that man is made in God's image and the chimpanzee isn't. So there's a distinction. Okay, so all these distinctions hold, and that's why we obtain the doctrine of God, man, and nature, all flowing from the event of creation. And you can't say you believe that if you don't buy into the literalness and historicity of the creation acts in Genesis. Then we said that the Bible is different from all the religions in the earth in the sense that it starts evil after origins. So there's a fall that happens. That's missing out of pagan thought. Pagan thought says that evil, sickness, death, and sorrow are just the normal attributes of existence. And we as Christians say, no, that's wrong. Because of the fall, evil, death, sorrow, and suffering are abnormal features of existence brought into existence not by the Creator, but brought into existence by disobedience, by rebellion of the creature against the Creator. So there, this, by separating the fall and the creation, that's a tremendous thing that's happened here. You can't overemphasize this. This is why we spent four chapters out of six just on these two things. You cannot overemphasize this, that the creation and the fall are two absolutely, fundamentally different things. And what that distinction causes is an awesome responsibility that falls upon the creature's shoulders from creating evil. Now, if that's the case, we move now to the third issue, the flood. The flood in the Bible is universally picked up in the pages of the New Testament as a mirror of what? When you think of Jesus and the apostles talking about Noah's flood, in what context are Jesus and the apostles inevitably talking about the flood? 
talking in terms of the second advent of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the flood is being used for in the New Testament as a picture of that which is yet coming, the future and culminating act of history. A, a cosmic catastrophe is coming. And so the Bible then says that there's a solution to the problem brought in by the fall. If the fall created evil in an otherwise good creation and has thereby produced a situation of this tension between what we know ought to be and what in fact we observe is happening, the question obviously is, well, is there any resolution? Is there any solution to the evil problem? What is the culmination of this? Is this to go on forever? Or is there a salvation? And the Bible's answer is, there is a salvation, and it is, and here's the key, and we're going to emphasize this 120 times in this chapter coming up, so I'm going to start tonight. The biblical view of salvation is an intrusion by the Creator again into the cosmos. It's nothing less than that. The fall was something we did. Salvation is something God does. And the reason that God has to do this is because we have blown it. There is no way that man can undo the results of the fall. It's a, it's a to cite a, maybe a chemical thing, it's a one-way reaction. You can't drive the reaction the other way. So, it's a, it's a, in terms of mechanical engineer, it's a ratchet device. And the ratchet only allows the wheel to turn one direction. You can't, you can't get it back. And that's the picture the Bible presents. Now, having presented the creation of the fall, this is why salvation in the Bible is also different from all the other religions of the world. There's not another religion outside of the Bible that really speaks of salvation. Okay? I want to emphasize that. They may use the word salvation, but when you look at the content of what they're talking about, it's nothing more than a medical prescription for sorteau. It's just uh, an anesthesia to do away with some of the pain, or it's some little relative gimmick that allows me to, to look too, you know, I'm two snotches up above my neighbor or something like that. That's, that's the only kind of salvation possible on a pagan basis because there's no problem. You see, the creation of the fall defined the problem, and the salvation is the answer to the problem. So the nature of salvation in the Bible is predetermined by the problem that you're to be saved from. And that's why these three acts go together. And that's why you can't take a part of the Bible and talk about it without taking all of the Bible and talking about it. It all fits together. You get the wrong diagnosis and you'll always get the wrong prognosis. If you misdiagnose the disease, you can't heal it. So the nature of salvation in Scripture is a radical one. And it's radical precisely because of what caused the problem that needed saving from. So let's turn in the handout to, uh, to page 71. And I want to turn to Genesis chapter 6, if you will, please.
Because in Genesis 6, we have a passage that gives a lot of people difficulty. I won't go into the angels and the men and all that, but I want to go into one that is even more profound difficulty than that situation, is verses 5 and 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, just look at verse 5 and the diagnosis. This is the diagnosis. It's not the Apostle Paul. It's not something in the New Testament. This is not something that Augustine created or the Christian church. Verse 5 has been around for centuries before the Christian church. It's been centuries before the Apostle Paul. This is not a Pauline uh, speculation and this, this horrible New Testament apostle and he and Calvin and Augustine always kept talking about the badness of man. Wait a minute. Look at verse 5. Can you get any worse than that? That's a, that's a diagnosis and a description of the human race. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now tell me that Augustine and Paul and Calvin are worse than that. See, they didn't start that. They just read their Bible. The problem is that people who read them don't read the Bible. Then in verse 6, notice the personal action. And the Lord was sorry he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. I am sorry I have made them. Now that's the personal nature. Remember we said, what distinguishes paganism from biblical religion? In paganism, remember what we said? In paganism, there's no ultimate person. Paganism only has this impersonal principle. Paganism starts off in the beginning was gas. In biblical view, in the beginning was God. So there's a person behind it all. And a person, though he is infinite and personal, he is still personal. And that means he has similarities with us. We get mad. God gets mad. And this is the anger of the Lord here. He reacts. He gets mad. And he is, he is mad here, and he is grieved in his heart over his workmanship. I made this universe, and look what has happened to it. Small-scale version of it is a woman who cleans the house. And you spend all day long cleaning the house, and what comes through the front door? And you get mad. You have created this thing, and look what happened to it. That's a very tiny example of what God thought when he created the universe, and look what happened to it. See, you can't cause a flood. He can. Okay. What happens now is that we are going to introduce two words. This is a word pair that go together. Get down these two words. Because in the Bible, it's important you always see these two words hooked together. One is the word judgment. The second is the word salvation. You cannot in Scripture have one without also having the other. And the flood is an example. People are saved, but they are saved precisely because God judges evil. Get hold of that idea. 
The salvation in Scripture is a salvation caused by a judgment. So the two hinge together. Now, this Genesis narrative, I said, has given people a hard time because it's talking about a flood, that God did this, he causes global flood and so forth and so on, and can we really believe this? And for years and years and years, have the same problem in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 that we had in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Same book, same problem. And what, when we went through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, did we say? We said, there are three approaches that you can take. Right? What was the first one? The first approach that was begun uh, after the Reformation kind of petered out and you had German rationalism rise in Europe and the ministers all went to Europe to fancy to get their doctorates and they imported all this German rationalism. And what was, what was the story? It was liberalism and liberalism says... We capitulate to the modern view of history and we force the Bible to fit that. We capitulate, so we call that the, the strategy of capitulation. We try to hold on with our fingernails a few goodies out of the scripture, but basically what we've done is we've become traitors and we have given away the house. We have given away completely the scripture. That's the strategy of capitulation and compromise. We said the second group, many of them born again, hold to the strategy of accommodation, hoping desperately there's some way to make the Bible fit with modern accounts of history. And we said this has been tried and found wanting for 150 years. Over and over again people have tried. Godly men and scholars have tried this. And you can't bridge the gap. So we said the third tactic is simply try a counterattack and say, look, the Bible must be true, and if the Bible is true and we've got a conflict, there's something radically wrong with our contemporary understanding of history. Something very much wrong. Those are the only three choices. So, obviously, those of us who are the fundamentalists take the choice that the Bible can't be fit, the Bible doesn't fit, and if the Bible doesn't fit, then the problem is with the way we reconstruct history. Well, what I want to do on pages 73 and 74 is I want to defend the fact that the Bible is speaking here in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 6 through 8, of a literal flood. Accommodationists want to deny this, and many Christians do this. This is, a, this is an argument going on inside our own camp. So we want to deal with a literal flood interpretation and why... That is the interpretation of Genesis. <clears throat> I've summarized, there's many arguments you can have, but in your notes, I've summarized on pages 73 and 74 a, a series of arguments. Uh, there's three there, and you're, in the handout tonight, there's a fourth one. We're going to cover tonight the three arguments, three of the four, to show that the Bible clearly teaches a radical global flood. For some of you, this is a waste of time because you say, well, obviously the Bible means that. Well, don't be so passive and sit here and think you've got it all because sooner or later you're going to be around other Christians who are going to try to take you to task for that. And be prepared. And don't be shocked if it happens someday because it's, it's widely prevalent in our own evangelical circles that this, this is talking about a local flood it is not some global catastrophe. It's the fact it's a flood that's so local and so small scale that we can't even find a trace of it in archaeology, in geology. 
So what we want to do is, is, is demonstrate this by turning to Genesis 7, verse 19. And the first argument we're going to deal with is what we call the depth-time argument. The depth-time argument. Now, here's the structure of this argument. The argument is going to show that I can prove the universality of the flood without using this word. A-L-L. Obviously, throughout the text, all is used. All the mountains and all the hills were done. But those who would hold to a local flood say that's just a relative use of all. It just means, uh, you know, a lot of them. And or all of them in a local area. All of them within the horizon of Noah were covered. That's all that means. So the depth-time argument is going to reason without using the word all. We're going to use a line of argument that is independent of that word. And here's the argument. It comes out of Genesis 7, 19 and 20. The water, describing... This is an observation now, okay? This is an observation of what was going on during that awful flood. It says, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Now, we're going to ignore all the universal statements there and we're just going to look at one statement, the depth. It says 15 cubits. Notice that? 15 cubits. All right, 15 cubits. And a conversion factor for a cubit is roughly 1.5. So, we take 15, half of that's 22 or 23, say roughly 22 feet. For 22 feet up, the water prevailed. Now, why 22 feet? Why do you suppose 22 feet is mentioned? If you're in a boat and you're floating in a body of water and you never ground, the hull of the boat never grounds, never touches ground, how deep do you know the water to be at least? You're out in a boat. Here's the water level. And no matter where you go in your boat, you never touch ground. So what does that prove about the depth of the water? The depth of the water must be at least that. That's called the draft of the boat. And that's what this observation is. That the ark was able to freely float and never ground it. Okay? So the water was at least 22 feet above whatever the ground that the boat floated over. Now, next question. How long did this condition in Genesis 7:19 last? Well, you look at the text and it lasts for a year. Well, now the question comes, what does this tell us about things? Let's see if we can reason together based on just those two observations, that the boat never grounds with a draft of 22 feet for a year and floats all over the place. Well, let's see. Let's go to the Middle East and look at a map. Here's modern maps to just place where we're talking. Here's Iraq, Baghdad. Here's the Persian Gulf. Here's Iran. There is the Euphrates River. There is the Tigris River, reputed by the local people 
We don't, but they do. Reputed by the local people to be the site of this local flood of Noah's. Okay? So let's grant them that premise. That somehow this was just a river flood that occurred here in Iraq. Now somewhere in this thing, the, the ark is, is, is for one year floating around and never grounds. All right, the next question obviously is, I wonder how high the hills are in that area. So we go to a contour chart. And we say, let's look at what some of the hills, the high hills are. Now these contours give us the height above sea level. This is the thousand foot contour. Notice, halfway up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the valley's a thousand feet above sea level. And in this area, there are hills and mountains four or five hundred feet above the valley floor. Minimum. So if the boat's floating around and never grounds, never grounds on any hill for one year, we're a thousand feet above sea level to start with, and the hills are four to five hundred feet, now we've got a little problem of having at least four or five hundred feet of water, don't we? Four or five hundred feet of water in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley for one year. That's an interesting kind of flood. And what's further interesting is, what's the natural drainage pattern in this valley? From northwest to southeast. Where did the ark ground? Northwest. So not only do we have the spectacle of somehow keeping a, a thousand feet of water for one year suspended in this valley, but we've got the ark floating in the wrong direction. Instead of going down the river, it's going up the river and grounds up there. Now, what I've just shown you is why you cannot accommodate the scripture to what science is telling us happened in history here. One of the two of them, or both of them, are in bad shape. So that's why we have to rethink this whole thing, and that's what we're, going to, we're pressing to do. If you look on page 73, just before 2, the second argument, that paragraph, notice something else. Next, we come to the term, under all the heavens. A check of occurrences of this phrase elsewhere, and there are all the references, you can find them for yourself in a concordance, shows it never refers to an area small and several hundred miles wide. Given such a minimum area, where in the Middle East can one place the flood without including at least some points of land several thousand feet above sea level? And if these points must be covered for many months, the flood must have been global. Thus, the details of the text directly imply a global flood, regardless of the usage of the term all. I don't need to make all all to still define the flood as global. All right, so that's one major argument. That was an argument, by the way, introduced in 1961 by Morris and Whitcomb in their book, The Genesis Flood. Now, another argument. If you'll turn in the Bible to Genesis chapter 7, uh, Genesis chapter 6, excuse me, um, verse 14 and 15. Genesis 6, 14 and 15. Where did the plan for the ark come from? Popular Science Magazine? God revealed it to Noah. Now let's observe the dimensions of that ark. Verse 15. 
The length is 300 cubits. Multiply that 1.5. How many feet long is that arc? 450 feet. Pretty healthy size. The breadth is 50 cubits. Multiply it by 1.5. 75 feet across. And its height is 30 cubits. Now notice the ratio between the breadth and the height. If the height had been 50 and the width had been 30, would it have looked more like a normal ship? Probably. Up that way. But why do you, what, what does this tell you about the stability of that boat by having its width 50 and its height only 30? It tells you it's, it's, it's uh, stable, architecturally a stable platform. And you can run computations on it. Uh, Dr. Morris, who was the co-author of the Genesis Flood, turns out his PhD is in hydrodynamics. And he wrote a paper in which he showed you take the formulas that are used for stability of hulls and you apply it to Noah's uh, arc. And it turns out that that arc can be tipped almost 60 degrees in either direction and the center of gravity restores it. It's an enormously stable design. Enormously stable design. Now, here's something interesting and striking. If this Bible is just a collection of mythology, where do you suppose these ancient people who never built a boat this big, name me one boat that has ever in history built this big. There's not another boat built this big as Noah's Ark until 1864. By the time the American Revolution happened, the best navies of Europe didn't build boats this big. No boat was ever built that we know of equal to exceed the dimensions of Noah's Ark until in the 1860s. Okay? But now, what was going on in the ancient world while this Bible was being written? We have myths and stories in the other cultures of a flood. But remember we always said, what is myth? But myth is the truth mutilated by the flesh. Myth is original truth that has been mutilated by selective forgetfulness and deliberate distortion by the man's sin, man's sinful imagination. If you look at these other stories, however, you do see parallel elements. There was a flood, there was an ark, but notice the ark size. Here is Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim is about one of the Middle Eastern Noahs in the mythologies. What do you notice about that ark? 200 by 200. It's enormous, all right. But I suggest that if you had a little experiment with some balsa wood or some wood in your bathtub, and you cut one balsa wood piece out to equal that on the left side, Noah's ark, and you cut a perfect cube out to make Utnapishtim's ark, and then you, you started waterways in your tub and watched which one was stable, which one do you think would be the most stable? The ark. What happens to a cube in water like this? The center of gravity is at the center of the mass. So what happens to it when it's tipped? It rotates. It falls all over the place. It just tumbles. But the other design doesn't tumble. So it's these fine-scale details that speak to us of the reality of this narrative. This is the mythological narrative, and the details of it don't fit. This is the true narrative, preserved by the Holy Spirit, from men's distorted memories. 
and is now reporting to us out of the text, out of these verses, the true dimensions of a boat that was done thousands and thousands of years before modern steel hull boats had the strength to be of this size. Now, there's something else about this. If you'll notice in this note on page 74, where we talk about not only the ark's distinctive size design, and design purpose, but on the second paragraph on page 74, we also mention that the ceiling. If you look in chapter 6, uh, verse 14, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and you will cover it inside and out with the word that's translated in our English Bibles as pitch. What's interesting in the Hebrew is that this word is, is uh, K-F-R, the consonants, kafar. And kafar is used also later in the Bible for an atonement, a covering or atonement. It's used just like that in the Old Testament for the covering of the blood. So this ark was covered with something. And you'll notice something else. That after the animals are brought to it, and their, their, their door is closed, in chapter 7, verse 16, a radical observation that has never been reproduced in any film I know that Hollywood has ever produced about the Bible. Notice the last clause in verse 16. No Hollywood producer has ever successfully portrayed this in video. The Lord closed the door. Remember the movie, The Bible, it has John Houston playing Noah. And all the animals come in and Houston clop-clops in his sandals down and he starts pulling on pulleys. And the, and the ark door comes up like a, a moat to a castle. Now, first of all, besides a little waterproof problem, that doesn't reflect the observations of the text. God sealed it. There's a profound salvation truth in here. And I think any of you who thought about it are seeing something about eternal security involved in this little observation. That what the vehicle of salvation is sealed, God does the sealing. And what does that do for the inhabitants and the occupants inside the vessel of salvation? So, all these details are tremendously important but what's interesting, besides those details, is shown in this little diagram. Down here at the bottom is a scale drawing of a railroad boxcar. And what's significant is that it would take almost, I think, uh, Morrison Wickham calculate this, and I, I mentioned it somewhere in here, uh, 500 boxcars is the equivalent volume of the ark. Now, if you took the average size of animals, it turns out the average size of an animal is about a sheep, if you average all animals. It's small in the sheep. And you multiply by two kinds and, and allow generous things for land animals. They can fit, I think, you can take two of every kind. Morris has all the, all the, all the calculations. You can take two of every kind and fit them in less than 200 and something odd boxcars, which leaves over half the ark empty. <clears throat> and, of course, people have <clears throat> railed about, oh, well, well you could, uh, Noah and the eight family couldn't handle the manure. They couldn't do the feeding. I mean, this was a menagerie on wheels, on, not on wheels, this was a menagerie on a boat. Uh, what happened to this? There's a new book out where a guy has studied this exact problem for ten years. 
and uh, it's just been published by the Institute of Creation Research. I suggest that to you. Um, I can get the title for you later. But uh, he, he goes into the whole theories of whether the animals were in a semi-hibernating state during this process or whatever. But the point remains that this ark <clears throat> was a massive thing, equal to a modern vessel in size, air, uh, naval, as far as the principles of naval architecture and, and hydrodynamic stability, was outstanding. It was 500 times the size of a rare boxcar. It has plenty of volume to do the job. Plenty of volume to do the job. And then finally, <clears throat> if you'll also think about chapter 6 and 7 here, <clears throat> what is man doing that harps back to what you read in Genesis 1? Think back to the function that man was to play in the universe in Genesis 1. When God made man, what did God tell man was his relationship to the animal kingdom? Remember? He is to rule it. Not rule it in the sense of being cruel. He is to rule it and take care of it. The animal kingdom. Who is the agent who saves the gene pool for the new world? man. Notice that when God saves, he doesn't undo his creation structures. The original creation structure held man as the little Lord, little, a Lord with a little L, and he was to be the, the custodian of the resources God placed for him. And lo and behold, when God tells man how to save himself, Man saves the kingdom over which he was to have dominion. So the ark becomes a vehicle. We would say today, he captured the gene pool of the entire land-based animal kingdom and was probably the most significant ecological act that man has ever done in history or ever will do. Noah and his family of seven people plus himself did the greatest ecological service that has ever been done in history. You will never hear this spoken of, of course, in your local Earth Day. Now we want to come to the third argument. We've covered the depth time argument, the size and purpose of the ark. The size and purpose of the argument point here is very simple. Uh, if, the ark, if the flood is local, you can migrate. You don't need a boat. Now we want to come to a very critical New Testament commentary on the old. We always like to control our interpretations of the old by the new. So turn over to 2 Peter. And while you're on your way to 2 Peter, stop off at 1 Peter. Remember, Peter was there when the Lord Jesus Christ drew the analogy between the flood and the coming advent. Peter must have been so impressed by the words of the Lord that he dwelled on this and the Holy Spirit opened his heart to see some of these truths. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, he speaks of the, of, of the flood. This is, again, pay attention to the New Testament, how the New Testament handles the Old Testament. And you'll see, he's speaking about uh, Jesus Christ going, a very difficult passage, by the way, in verse 19, where Jesus went to preach to the, the spirits in prison. Very difficult passage. 
who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, do you suppose Peter had a literal view of Genesis 6, 7, and 8? It certainly looks that way. So, if Peter didn't have a problem with a literal interpretation, what's our problem? Now, notice in verse 21, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, baptism is associated with water, and we suggest, there's a faint suggestion, that this flood episode is the first baptism in history. It becomes sort of an archetypical model of baptism. And, ironically, the people who are saved are the ones who are dry. The people who are wet in this particular baptism are the ones who are lost. But we want to come to 2 Peter because this is the crux. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is an enormously important passage. It has been long neglected by by people who debate this whole question. It's been brought up for centuries. There's no excuse for any scholar today to avoid interacting with Peter. Verse 5. Verse 5, 6, and 7. When they maintain this, it escapes your notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the presence heaven and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now let's test your powers of observation. When you go to the text of scripture, always try to ask who, what, when, and where. Ask the details of the text. What word pair do you notice in verse 5 and verse 7 that you've seen before and you've seen it repeatedly in the creation story? It's a word pair. Heavens and earth. Right? Remember, what's Genesis 1.1? Heavens and earth. Remember when we said heavens and earth is, a, is an antonymic word pair? What's a synonym in our modern English language for that word pair? The universe. The universe. So now let's plug the word universe in and see how it reads. For this they maintain this, it escapes their notice, that by the word of God, the universe that existed long ago was formed out of water and by water. Talk about making this flood cosmic. And then in verse 7, but the present universe by his word is being, res- is being reserved for fire. Now you see, what... The, the, the dynamics of this is, is that in verse... Let's diagram this out. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. You have a word pair here, H and E. Word pair in verse 7, H and E. This word pair refers to something that then was. This H and E, something that now is. Now, just that observation alone should clue you to the fact that far from taking and minimizing that flood in Genesis 6 to heaven, what is Peter doing? Far from minimizing it. He's maximizing it. He's saying this was a catastrophe that not just affected planet Earth. This affected the entire universe. It's an enormously important passage here. This is an apocalyptic, cosmic extension of that Genesis story in 6, 7, and 8. For Peter would never dream of this thing as a small local flood. He dreamed of this on a cosmic scale. This was a total uh, eclipse. 
And you want to understand this because as we go further on into this great story of salvation, remember what we're dealing with, folks. This is the first picture of a saving God. So, there's a magnificent strength and power here of the very word salvation. It's not something that's some little bathtub that ran over in Baghdad. This is going to be a massive cosmic intervention. All right, let's look at verse 6. Sandwiched between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 being the universe it then was. Verse 7, the universe it is now. The world was destroyed. The entire world system. And the Greek word there is a cataclysm. For the whole world. Destroyed. There's a discontinuity in history, Peter says. There was the old age and there is now the present age. It was such a discontinuity, he says, that there's no continuity across them because verse 4 that introduced this discussion says here's the problem with the pagan unbeliever. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was in the beginning of creation. That's the philosophy of the continuity of being. There it is. It's the heart of pagan thought. That there was no disturbance from the time the universe first appeared to the present day. There's never been a discontinuity, says paganism. And since there never has been a discontinuity in the past, there can't be a discontinuity in the future. And therefore, you Christians are wrong when you cite this belief you have in this stupendous second advent of Christ. That represents a discontinuity not allowed, not permitted by what we know of the universe. But you see, Peter cuts across that. And he cuts across it in the most vigorous way by making the flood a universal thing, not just a planet Earth thing or a Mesopotamian Valley thing. And he uses that as a counter-argument. He says, and notice too, he says, verse, verse uh, 5, but when they maintain this, it escapes their... Uh, verse 4, where's the promise of coming? They are mocking, he says. Uh, the word mocking, verse 3, excuse me. Mocking, following after their own lusts. Notice the word lusts. Now, he's not mentioning lust of the flesh necessarily here, but yet he is. He's saying that something in our sin nature, there is that which is in us, in our flesh, that just grates at the idea of an interfering God. The very idea that God can intervene cosmically in this universe? Now, why would a sinner want to say that? Security. Come on. The story here, the big game is security. Security from an interfering God. Security from reaping and sowing. Security from choices and consequences. So, there's a hidden ethical and spiritual motive behind all that philosophy in verse 4. What's Peter saying? Verse 3 says that the cause of the philosophy of verse 4 is the sin of man's heart. It's the sin in man's heart that twists his intellect. It's not that we have an intellectual problem. Ultimately, we have a moral spiritual problem that shows up in intellectual ways. But the intellectual problems are effects of spiritual causes. 
Okay. Now, I want to, uh, if you will, bear with me here. If you go, turn in the notes that you have now that we just handed out. There's one other, and since we're getting, uh, doing so well here in time, I want to go ahead and finish off this fourth argument. There are distinctive features in the antediluvian world. And if you look at paragraph, the first paragraph there on four, on page 75, you'll see where I, I make a note in the last sentence of that paragraph that many unbelieving scholars have caused this, called this pre-flood world a mythical land in a mythical age. And, and generally, the scholars who capitulate do this. They're honest to the text. They say, hey, fellas, no, no. You read Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. There's no way that that fits this present world. It's all religious speculation and imaginations. All those ancient, ignorant people that didn't have modern science at their disposal, and they just made this up. It's, it's, it's great fantasy story. But look what they're saying. They're admitting with us that what is described there is not what is happening today. There's two different worlds that are involved. The old world and the new. So let's look at some of those differences. The graph, verse 70, uh, on, on uh, page 75, the graph that I've got there is taken from Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. You can do this yourself. I urge you to do it. Take a piece of graph paper, go through those two chapters, and you plot for yourself that graph, just so you believe it. Go ahead. You plot that, plot the age at death of each, each uh, person, patriarch, draw out the points, and curve fit it. And look what you get. There's not an engineer in here that doesn't know immediately what that curve is. You see it again and again. You look at electrical circuits, and when a capacitor charges and discharges, what do you call that curve? Exponential decay curve. It's the potential across the plates of a capacitor. You take a glass of hot water and take a thermometer in that glass, get the thermometer hooked up to the, to the same the temperature of the water so that you've got equilibrium on your, on your thermometer, drop five ice cubes in the glass and watch the temperature drop and plot the temperature versus time and you'll see exponential decay curve. Everywhere you go in the physical universe, you get this curve when you move from one steady state to another steady state. It's almost universally experienced. And it's a striking thing. I've often been sarcastic with some of my liberal friends. Of course this was all made up. Moses had his TI pocket calculator and he simply pressed the logarithmic button and he came up with a logarithmic decay curve. Very easy. You see, it's traces of detail in the text that show its reality. The Bible is reporting something tremendously important. And if you want to compare that curve with the curve that you get in mythologies, because, by the way, you can read mythologies, and they, too, speak of a long-time golden age when men lived tens of thousands of years. But if you plot their ages, it goes up to something like 200,000 years or 100,000 years, and you have these big curves here. Then you have the flood, and you have some sort of a, a sharp break-off like this. In other words, it's a step function. Isn't it striking that the Bible alone, just like the design of the ark, the Bible has the traits of real observations when you look at them carefully. This is the spirit of truth. And he's left his marks all over the text if we just but have the eyes of faith to open and be intellectually honest enough to absorb them.
Okay, so if that graph is correct, and if we go from... By the way, the curve of best fit through those points before the flood is about 930. What do you offer by way of explanation for what went on to the human body living 930 years and now goes to, say, 90 at best? How do you go from 930 down to 90? How do you expend... Expand, uh, explain a 90% reduction in human viability. What caused that one? Local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley with the ark floating in the wrong direction? What caused this? Think of the body chemistry and the details of how we are gloriously and wonderfully made. What on earth caused this tremendous deterioration in our health? We're little pygmies compared to these people that lived in a glorious antediluvian world. They would look upon us and say, what are you, sick? It's amazing, these people. And next year when we get into the, genesis, the beginning of this history and we start talking about the ancient East and the cradle of civilization and we get into some mythologies, you'll see the implications. This was remembered. This was remembered in history and had a profound effect on how ancient history was written. But this strange, strange thing that happened, and what is enormously interesting, and I leave it for your imagination, but here's a puzzle for you to figure out. During this period of time right here after the flood, you would have had grandparents dying after their grandchildren by virtue of this curve. You can figure it out for yourself on that thing. Amazing thing begins to happen. The deterioration curve works such that grandchildren die before their grandparents only for a, only for a part time in history. There was only one period of human history this happened during that transition zone. And it was so traumatic that its memories last forever in the myths of the world. The great gods and goddesses are remembered as human beings that sinned and that acted like people. They were. They were these superhuman people of the Noah's generation that coexisted and co-lived on the face of this planet with other people who were born and who were mortal like we are. And to them, the generation of their parents and their grandparents, they were the gods and goddesses of the world because they knew that they had powers of longevity that they have never had. This is a spawning ground. It's, it's completely missed by students of history. And yet it's the explanation for all of these stories. Let's go a little bit further. On page 76, I continue with that fourth thing because I want to show you some more observations. Turn to Genesis 2. If you haven't been convinced yet that the Bible presents an utterly different universe before the flood than the present universe, watch this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, speaks of Eden. Now, we always get our eyes on Adam and Eve and the serpent and so on. Don't do that tonight. I want you to focus as a map maker would focus. Tonight, you're a map maker. You're a cartographer. And you're trying to use the data of verse 7 and 8 and 9 to construct a map. You don't know what the continents looked like in the ancient world. No guarantees. 
But for some area, it says there was a region called Eden. You'll notice that the text says God planted a garden in Eden. The garden is not Eden. The garden is in Eden. And it's, I've drawn this out of shape here, should be. The garden was east in Eden. So there's the little garden. And there was the site of the first man and woman, wherever this place was on this planet before the flood. But there's some strange things about this garden and this Eden. Because as you go down the verse, verse 10 reports that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided. Now, you've read that verse. If you're a Christian for 10, 15 years, I'll bet you you have read that verse dozens and dozens of times and you never noticed that there's something very strange about that verse. Do you see what it is? Something's wrong about that verse. Something about that verse doesn't fit what we know about hydrodynamics. Let's look at the map. There's a river that flows out of Eden to water the garden. And what does it do after it leaves Eden? It divides. It divides into four rivers. Where do you ever see rivers dividing like that? Rivers combine. The Mississippi and the Missouri River, they combine. But where do rivers diverge? Now, if you're a map maker, and this is an observation about rivers diverging, what does that tell you about the height of the land? Deduce, make some deductions here. What does that tell you about the altitude? It tells you that wherever this place is, it was on a mountain. The only place we have watershed divided today is in the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian Trail, uh, the Appalachian Mountains, there's a watershed division. Raindrops, and the, the old theoretical is a raindrop comes down and hits the, hits the knife edge of the uh, division, and then the water molecules, some go east, some go west, and ones that go west drain off into uh, Kentucky, go into the Ohio River Basin, go out into the Gulf of Mexico, and the guys that fall on the east side of the thing, they come out here and go into the Susquehanna and go on out in Chesapeake Bay and out in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, there's a divergence, but the divergence is caused by a mountainous terrain. But even that doesn't really quite explain this pattern. Somehow, these rivers are diverging, and it's coming from somewhere. We're not told where that river comes from. We're just told that it exits someplace, waters the garden. There's a hint in verse 6, and the hint is in that word M-I-S-T, a mist, used to rise in the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That word is also a Hebrew word that can mean an artesian well, and that's how I take it. I take it that this water was coming out of the ground. We'll take this up next week, but I want you to look before next week at two verses in the New Testament. They're in that first paragraph on page 76. Look at John 4.14 and look at Revelation 22.1-2 and see if that doesn't stimulate some thoughts about this world that then was. We'll continue from there next time. Father, thank you for our study tonight. We thank you for the truths of Scripture and that all the features of this text are new. Open our eyes and give us courage to think through the implications of what we're reading and not be hasty, sloppy, and apologetic 
about our faith, but trust you that you do know what you're doing, that in the contemporary world around us there's been some very structurally wrong thinking going on that has led to an entire edifice of history and science that is tremendously distorted in very serious ways. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts to these truths, that we can walk by faith and not by sight. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, there's been a lot of speculation. But because we really don't know the features of that world, I mean, we have such a small set of observations, it's pretty hard to tell what went on. The only hint that we have is that animals in the prehistoric era were all big. There are stories of dinosaurs existing the size of your collie dog uh, well into the Middle Ages. And obviously, what these grandiose animals that weighed tons are only weighing hundreds of pounds after the flood. Well, how come? Something, whatever it was that deteriorated the human body, also deteriorated animal bodies. And that's why in the fossil strata, the old animals of bygone era are rather enormous and had, must have had enormous consumption of food. And uh, you can imagine there must have been a luxuriant creation to supply them with food. Uh, so we live in a planet of scarcity compared to what that environment was. So who knows what it was. Whether I mean, so the leading suggestions are that it was a genetic deterioration because you suddenly limited the gene pool down to Noah's family. So keep in mind that uh, all of our genes come out of eight people and that this was a distance from the fall where you had already introduced genetic corruptions. Then there's, and part of that genetic corruption uh, must be monitored because we still don't understand very well what was going on in Genesis 6 when the angels intermarried. And I know, I know many godly scholars take that to mean the godly line intermarried with the ungodly line, but uh, most Hebrew scholars I've talked to and just treat it like Bani Elohim is always, always angels. So now what on earth was going on there where angels apparently corporealized into human bodies and had sexual intercourse with human females? And what was this? And did they genetically destroy the human race? I mean, did we have some very serious genetic stuff going on there? We don't know. But the, the genetic argument is that the gene pool was pinched down to only eight. So whatever defects were inherited through Noah's sons and their wives was just simply propagated to all of us. Another argument is the diet. That uh, in the Bible, we'll get into that later in the Noahic Covenant, we are now to be carnivorous. And there was a vegetarian diet prior to the flood. And it's a carnivorous diet today. And of course, the health people say that, gee, we should eat less meat. But yet God commands that we eat meat. And I think there's reasons for that also. But 
point is that there's a diet, there's a genetic pool, uh, there's been a, I've, I've seen a theory of hyperbaric pressure where uh, people, they've been doing experiments with healing of, of people after surgery and they put them in a, in a tank and increase pressure so that they're down, say, equivalent, you know, hundreds of feet underwater, but not underwater, you're just under air. But you increase the pressure and for some reason the body heals phenomenally well under high pressure and keep the oxygen ratios the same and so on. And so the body responds to that. So maybe there was something to do with higher pressure. But these are all just speculations. But all we have is that, that fact. And to me, that was one of the most powerful things when I was a new Christian, because I, was, always into, I had, was studying math and science at the time, and I started working that curve, and I thought, wow, this, this is real. This isn't a story. This is real data. That's the kind of stuff you see in a laboratory. And it was remarkable, because then I would go read the critics of the Bible, and they would yak-yak endlessly about the mythologies and this and that and so on. Not one of them ever interacted with that. I haven't seen one person outside of creationists talk about that curve. Not one. They just avoid it like a hot potato. And I think it's a signal. It's a, it's a graphic signal inside the text itself, that this is real data God's the Holy Spirit's telling us. Uh, so... It was awesome, and I think if you can't conceive of any physical force that caused us a 90% deterioration without saying that it, there must have been other things going on in the environment at the same time. I mean, if you're going to talk about uh, diet, you're going to talk, blame it on hyperpressure, you're going to blame it on something, you've automatically implicated the environment. So there was something in the environment that happened radically different, too, at that time. But that's a major, a major observation on the flood narrative. And you, it's hard to write that off as mythology. Very difficult. Has anybody, does anybody have a sense, uh, as we're moving from creation to the fall to the flood, of, are you beginning to see how the Bible fits together that there's, you can't isolate, you know, your whole view of salvation is contingent on the creation. You begin to see why, as a Christian, you have to think holistically. You have to think of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You can't talk just about a piece without talking about all of it. I think that's a very vital lesson to remember. And conversely, um, uh, Marsh has uh, several times has talked about, well, how do you ask this person or that person about such and such? I think part of it is that you almost have to make the non-Christian realize that his worldview fits together too. There are certain things that fit together. If you're not going to subscribe to the Bible in the, flood, the fall, you have no, no explanation for evil. And if evil's always there, then you've got the situation where you can never get rid of it. What do you do with it? I mean, you, you sit there and you complain about we Christians and our God is an evil God for letting this happen and so forth. What do you, what do you got as an alternative out there? What is your alternative? And if they give you some song and dance about, well, I think evil will go away someday, well, why do you think that? I mean, I thought we got rid of God, you know, a couple of hours ago in a conversation. Why does evil go away? So... This is a kind of a sobering and maturing experience to begin to see that there is such a thing as a worldview. And how you think in one area controls how you think over there.
You can't isolate your, isolate your mind. It can't be so easily compartmentalized. And see, that's why we, it's pathetic how we're educated and why most of us who are adults here who became Christians later in our lives, we had to overcome our education to become Christians, if you think about it. Most of the stuff that you've learned in Scripture has been in direct conflict with what, what, everything you've learned. That passage we went through tonight, where Peter's saying, this they willingly are ignorant of. That, and then they say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, what a depiction of the insistence of natural unbelieving man that is constant. Remember when we dealt with the immutability of God? And I said, we root our faith and trust in His enduring character for our constants. We don't depend on anything in the universe to be the, the ground on which we stand. We stand on Him. And because we stand on Him, I don't get terrified that, say, the constant of the speed of light might have changed. Now, that's terribly upsetting to an unbelieving scientist to suggest that the holy grail of the speed of light changed. Because if that changed, he's in deep trouble all of a sudden, and he'll come back at you and say, if there are no constants, then there's no knowledge. And that's why he says, you Christians are dangerous people. And that's why uh, Philip Johnson, in his book that has just come out, Reason in the Balance, who's the professor of law at Berkeley, who's come out for us, and he says that this is why we are so vigorously opposed at school board meetings. This is why we're so vigorously opposed in the election system. It's because we are a threat. And you may never have thought of yourself as that. But we are a profound threat to a thinking, intelligent, non-Christian society. Because they have structured their entire house of cards on the assumption that man can find his constants in this creation. And that there's going to be no interference from outside. They're terrified of outside interference because once they allow it at one point, they've allowed it in principle at every point. And then they've undone their own structure. So that's why there's this vigorous culture war between supernaturalist Christians, as ourselves, and the naturalists, the anti-supernaturalists, who, who just viciously defend that position. So the flood, by thinking about this flood story, and this is what I love about the Old Testament, you don't have to be a theologian to think deeply on these matters. All you have to do is fill the imagination of your heart with these stories. That's all you have to do. Just reflect on, on for example, tonight we mentioned Noah sitting there getting the directions on how to cut the wood for the ark. Getting the directions of the dimensions. Literally getting a blueprint from God on how to build this deal. Now, if you can think of yourself ever, you know, when you're trying to use a saw or something, you're building something, think of, think of the planning that you do to do that act. Now, in your mind, just stop a moment and think of what it must have been like if you would have been Noah. And God tells you, this is the way I want you to build it. Now, if that happened to you, if God came to you and told you, I want you to build this thing, and these are the dimensions, and I don't want you to screw up, you, do, you follow my blueprint, would you have any doubt after that experience that God can reveal himself? 
Would you have any doubt that he can talk to you about things on his heart? Would you have any doubt that there's a plan behind the universe? Could you imagine what the emotional relief must have been when all of a sudden that flood started and this ark starts creaking and, and lifts off? And you have the screams of people. And Josephus says the people were being scalded to death outside because there was volcanic activity and that water was over 200 degrees that was coming up in certain places. So you had people just screaming and pounding on the side of that ark. And, and it's lifting off. You can't, even, you can't reach out then and save them. And think of what you would have said to yourself. Well, boy, I'm glad I built this thing the way he wanted had any man ever seen a boat that big? Probably not. So there was no precedence here. And here you got God coming to a man in, in engineering terms with a blueprint that has never, ever before been done. It would have been like God coming to you and you were here in 1765 and he said, here's a rocket ship. Follow the directions. And you press the button and it launches. Holy mackerel. And then the, and then the earth disappears before you in a ball of fire or something. That's the kind of emotional trauma that these people went through. And that's, that's what I'm trying to show you here from the text, is that this flood event is big-time stuff here. That's a good observation. Yes. What do you do with Genesis 2? It had not rained. Now, some of the accommodationists say, well, that means just locally in the Garden of Eden it didn't rain. But... If you'll follow what those notes do, I'll lead you through a little line of re logic. There are several evidences to suggest why it did not rain before the flood. Because there are several observations laced throughout the text that turn out to be consistent. After the flood happens, what natural phenomena is first mentioned? It's so new that it becomes a symbol of a covenant. The rainbow. Now, you ever think about how to get a rainbow? Now, you can create a rainbow at home with your hose nozzle, spraying it a certain way. But if you watch the hose nozzle while you're spraying, you'll notice that you won't get the rainbow unless you have pretty coarse-sized drops. You can get light diffraction through water, but you don't get color diffraction until the drops reach a certain diameter. Now, it just turns out that the diameter that is optically necessary to spread the light into a spectrum is the, is the diameter required to make that drop heavy enough to fall. So what I'm suggesting is that before the flood, when you have this observation, just a little innocent observation, there was no rain. And then you have this seemingly separate observation over here in Genesis 9, and I set my bow in the cloud. I'm saying that those two observations are very physically consistent. That that bow was new. That had never been seen before. And it had never been seen because there never has been rain before. Now, if there had never been rain for 1,600 and some odd years before the flood, the earth must have been watered somehow. How was the earth watered? And that's why you ought to read Revelation 22 and so on and think about what we started tonight. The river that comes out of Eden that waters the earth. And then think... That, that it was an artesian effect. The, the entire geography, the entire hydrodynamic cycle was different. The world before the flood was a... We would not recognize it, I don't think. I think if we could take a time machine, somehow on an imaginary trip, and we climb in a time capsule, 
and we go back before the flood and we suddenly land somewhere and we walk out the door, our immediate thought would be, we're on a different planet. It would be so different. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, that would be a, a neat, stunning science fiction movie. See, Christians could take advantage of the science fiction genre and write a neat story about that. But it really would be, it would prick our imaginations. We need people. Um, if you, you know, you know people that are young Christians particularly that like to write, like to do that. Man, there's a world waiting out there for somebody that's willing to help us imagine the truths of Scripture. The imaginative power of good literature. So, we can't make these events trivial. They've got to be really big ones. Any more questions? Thoughts? Okay, well next week we'll continue um, with the, the, the river that comes out of Eden and where it goes.